um, invite you to grab your Bibles and turn and open them to our text for today, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. <clears throat> this is our scheduled epistle reading for the day, um, so we won't be doing the epistle reading later, just using the epistle reading as our text today. Um, if you're familiar with your Bible, you may have had an internal uh, uh, gasp uh, when I said what our text was today. Um, due to the content of our text. Um, but as um, we prepared for this Sunday and looking at the readings for today, seeing the Old Testament reading, which was a beautiful story of God's grace extended to Samuel, was also a cautionary tale of God's wrath towards Eli's rebellious sons and the things that they did uh, under the banner of service to the Lord to abuse God's people uh, from a position and place of, of authority and priesthood, um, which is, there's not even words that can adequately express the gravity um, of that situation. And then to have, as our epistle reading today, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and to just allow those passages to be read out loud in the presence of the congregation, and then go and talk about something else um, felt unpastoral, to say the least especially when there's so much going on, not only in our culture, but within the greater expression of the church of Jesus Christ today that is wrapped up in these things. And so um, today, going through this passage uh, is, is just submission to the will of God, his sovereignty and having these passages be what we were to read today, um, and things like that we don't even uh, orchestrate, like allowing our confession today to be from Psalm 51, um, to be that, we didn't go, oh, let's use this confession today. That was already set in place, and the placement of that is completely and totally, as is the casting of the die. Uh, in the hands of the Lord. And, and so uh, today, um, textually, is a, it's a tough day. Um, and yet, God is good, and he does good, and his word is good. And those things that are in Scripture that are meant to convict us are there for our good. And we must not skip over them. We must not jump over them. We must not pretend like they don't exist or try to keep them away from other people or away from our children or anything like that. These are things that God has given to us in his word for our instruction, for our benefit, even as Paul says to Timothy that all the word of God is breathed out for our exhortation, for our rebuke, for our benefit, 
um, in every way. And so uh, with that preamble, which is not an apology, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word today from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. We'll read out loud, and at the end of that reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. I invite you to respond in true praise today for this word by saying thanks be to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. Let's begin. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Selah. Verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. As we take a look at our culture today, we can see that all kinds of debauchery and wickedness are taking place at what seems like to us as unprecedented levels, at least in our existence post the Victorian and puritanical eras of our most recent shared history as Westerners. I would argue that if we had to go back in time, we would find that, uh, as scripture says, there is literally nothing new under the sun. Uh, but some in the room today have watched that descent, and for them it seems even more palpable. Um, it's always amazed me that there is less than 10 years between Ben-Hur sweeping the Academy Awards in 1960 and Midnight Cowboy, the first mainstream X-rated film, doing the same thing. That is a huge cultural shift in a very short period of time. And some of you here today were around 
to watch it. Um, the cultural shift, not the movie. Um, but for some here today, um, you were born into a society that seems to have only and always called what is good evil and evil good. Celebrating the things that God calls evil and doing what is right in their own eyes. Um, I've been devastated even just this weekend um, to hear the kinds of things that are now not only done in secret, but filmed and shared to the world via the internet. This last weekend, there was a tragedy that took place just four hours up the road in Houston, Texas, where in what is supposed to be one of the nicest malls in America, the Galleria in Houston, seven adult men abused two toddler boys, filmed it and distributed it on the internet. Um, that is deplorable. Um, to a certain degree, what do we expect? Sinners are going to sin and keep on trying to invent new ways to sin, only to find out that those are really the old ways of sinning. And so then there is a bridge that many cross over where they try purposefully to go back and find all the old ways of sinning to revive them again, like a perverse inverse of the church trying to reform back to the original intent of the church. As a descendant of all manner of Scandinavians and Highlanders, I can really get behind, however, a sentiment I recently saw where it was said, hey, let's all participate in the greatest and most widespread pagan tradition, that is, repent, submit to Christ, believe the gospel, and be baptized. If we're going to go all the way, then let's go full pagan and become Christians. Amen? <laughs> but it's one thing to look at the culture and see its natural descent into more and more wickedness, particularly in regards to sexual immorality. It's another entirely to begin to see that same kind of drift in the church. What we have to remember today with our text is that Paul was not writing something that he then posted in the uh, general forum uh, in the city of Corinth, but this was rather something that he was writing to the church. Um, and the Corinthian church was, to put it bluntly, plainly, and perhaps even in an understated way, the church in Corinth was a mess. Here's the almost unbelievable thing, is that when uh, Paul opens this letter to the Corinthians, he addresses it to the church of God that is in Corinth, chapter 1, verse 2, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though the church was nothing short of a hot mess, even so, even though there was all manner of wickedness and sin that was taking place within the church, so much so that in chapter 5, just the chapter before the chapter we read from today, 
Paul says that there are things going on within the church. He says that aren't even named among the pagans. Namely, that there was a young man in the church who was having sexual relations with his stepmother. And Paul says even, even the pagans understand that's not okay. It's not good. And yet, even still, Paul addresses them as brothers, as the church, as those who have been sanctified by the blood of Jesus. But that does not mean that Paul then says, so therefore, everything you guys are doing and are engaged in and are participating is okay. Hey guys, don't worry. It's under the blood of Jesus. That's not what Paul says. Instead, he rebukes the church for all manner of things um, and praise God. This, this is, can I just say, like, what a happy fall for the church. Praise God Corinth fell the way that they did and Paul rebuked them the way that he did so that we could have the benefit of the letter of 1 Corinthians for the church to know. This is where we go to see a sexual ethic for the church. This is where we go, uh, even though most of it should be fairly common sense with the rest of the Bible, but just in case you, it went over your head, Paul lays it out very clearly in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. Uh, here we see uh, how we're to conduct ourselves in marriage. Here we see how we're to conduct ourselves when we come to the Lord's table because all of the sin and debauchery that was going on in the church was filtrating through all of the rest of their lives so that everything they were doing was tainted up and into the Lord's table. Uh, which, by the way, is what happens with sin that is left unrepentant in your lives. Sin will always cost you more than you are willing to pay and take you further than you were willing to go. And so the best time to stop sinning is now. Not tomorrow, not the next day, not next week, not the first day of the month or the next first day of the week. It's now. Because sin never only just affects you. It always filters out through all of the rest of your life it will manifest itself in all manner of evil and destruction in your life, impacting those that you truly, even though you might be in the midst of absolute sin, people you truly do love and care about, it will destroy you and it will destroy them. So, <clears throat> it's one thing to look at the culture and see its natural descent into more and more wickedness, particularly in regards to sexual immorality. It is another entirely to begin to see that same kind of drift in the church. But there is no mistaking now that the Christian sexual ethic has been kicked down a few notches in the church today. Outside the church, maintaining a biblical view of sexuality is seen as bigotry and hatred by the rest of the world. That you would say that sexuality is meant to be expressed only between one man and one woman within the confines of marriage for a lifetime, you, you are, how dare you? 
you, you, you must be one of the most wicked people on earth. What is that? That's simply God's plan and design for marriage and sexuality. <clears throat> but now, even inside the church, the same sentiment has begun to develop as the church has grown soft on church discipline and has grown soft on calling sin, sin, especially when it comes to human sexuality. Just in our immediate context, we are contending with the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, who has now condoned the blessing of same-sex couples. And no matter how much he has tried to backpedal in the last few weeks, there is no getting around what he said that priests are allowed to do today. Now, we affirm against the papacy, and we affirm against the Bishop of Rome. However, we confess the same confessions that the Roman Catholic Church confesses. And it is a tragedy to see that happening today. Um, Ten years ago, I don't think anyone would have had it on their radar that the Pope would address the world and say that it was okay for priests to condone, uh, not to condone the blessing of same-sex couples. All you have to do is drive down our roads, even just this road right here, and find churches draped in rainbow flags. They are not celebrating God's blessing of not flooding the earth again in the Noahic Covenant. It is a virtue signal to the world that they have joined the zeitgeist. They have joined the spirit of the age and are no longer in submission to the God of the Bible, but to the God of culture. Um, never thought I would say this, but maybe it's time to bring back the Christian flag. Um, because I just don't know, like, at some point, there does come a need to distinguish between these things, especially when people use the same words and mean different things. Like, you cannot just go into a Presbyterian church and assume that what you're going to get is preaching and teaching that is biblically based and confined within the Westminster standards. Just this last year, a liberal Lutheran church in the United States went viral, proclaiming their faith and belief in what they called the Sparkle Creed. They confessed their faith and belief in, quote, the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural, and in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads, etc., etc., etc. Within the church today, as again the church has grown soft on church discipline and calling sin, sin, we have a whole movement within the church today called deconstruction, where you have modern evangelical, mostly uh, millennial and Gen Xers, who are going through a process that they call deconstructing their faith, where ultimately they usually move from organized church and religion to some sort of disorganized 
group and ultimately completely out of the faith altogether. This is happening wholesale within the church today and almost always ends up, if you wait and watch long enough, having something to do with sexuality. Um, Derek Webb was a evangelical Christian songwriter married to uh, a woman named Sandra McCracken, whose songs we actually sing on a regular basis here in our church. Um, he went through a deconstruction process and divorced his wife, left his family, fully apostated, made it public, invited people to come with him, and wore drag to the Dove Awards this year. I remember listening to him at a Passion Conference in Nashville, Tennessee in 2006 and being encouraged by his lyrics and the things he was saying. He's not the same dude anymore. <clears throat> this is happening in the church. Joshua Harris, the man who, when he was younger, became famous for kissing, dating, goodbye. Later, after even becoming the pastor of one of the largest Calvinistic churches in America, the founding church of Sovereign Grace called Covenant Life, again, a place where many of the songs that we sing as a church came out of that church. Harris not only kissed the church and organized religion goodbye, he kissed his wife goodbye. He made a statement that he had left the faith altogether. Again, invited everyone to come along with him posted on social media a message to the LGBTQ plus community. I want to say that I'm sorry for the views that I taught in my books and as a pastor regarding sexuality. He wrote, quote, I, reg I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you in your place in the church and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. So he sought absolution, not from God, but from the LGBTQ plus community. Make no mistake, the sex, the sex cults have not gone away. They have become mainstream. And the liberal woke left is not merely an ideology, it's a religion. And within the church, even more insidious things are happening as revisionist views are being propagated that seek to undo and redefine biblical ethics, these, this is on the rise. For instance, statistics point to the increasing prevalence of premarital cohabitation among professing Christians, not only of young people, but young and old alike, or even those older singles, perhaps divorcees, or just those that have never been married, uh, end up saying, well, we just, we need to find out if we are, um, you know, compatible. Another word that comes up is convenience. Well, you know, it's just so much more convenient. Really? You mean getting married and living together in one household might bring with it certain kinds of blessings in your life that might actually 
help you discover what God meant when he said to Adam he was going to make a wife who was to be a helpmate for him, uh, that, that Eve would have a husband that was a helpmate for her, that there would be a mutual uh, benefit to that? Really? But it's meant to be in a specific place. Beloved, unfortunately, sometimes obedience to God is inconvenient. Just in the very next chapter, Paul will address things that the Corinthian church had said to him. They, they received, uh, believe it or not, we have 1st and 2nd Corinthians. What we don't have is the pre-Corinthians letter. Um, by all measure of account and how Paul writes 1st Corinthians, 1st Corinthians was not Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We don't have his first letter. It's probably a good thing we don't have his first letter because they were totally confused. And, and now 1st Corinthians, Paul is, is fixing the confusion. One of those things, he had already told them about sexual immorality. They come back. He quotes them in 1st Corinthians 7 and, and says, uh, it's been said well, then we just shouldn't have, men shouldn't have sexual relations with their wives. He says, you missed it. That's not what I was saying. Wrong. Some people read that in 1 Corinthians, have no idea about context, and they say, Paul's saying that sex is bad. Sex is not bad. Sex is good. God made sex. It was part of his original plan and design. It was part of the blessing that he gave to man and woman together. When he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill, take dominion, subdue the earth. How were they going to do that? Through sexual union with one another. Within <laughs> confines that God had created, which was the union of one man and one woman in a marital union blessed by God. Um, I recently heard my friend, Pastor L. Johnson here in town say that Sex is like fire. Fire is wonderful in the right context, like in a fireplace or a fire pit or a blacksmith's uh, <coughs> forge. Wonderful, beautiful. You know, bring it together. Joel can make lasers, which is essentially fire, right? To a certain degree. And, Wonderful things in the right context. You know where a fire is not great? In your lap. No matter how cold it gets over the next few days, hear me now. Not a good idea to bring the fire out of the fireplace and build it up on your floor in the middle of the house. Not a good, no matter how cold you are, that is not a good idea. Okay? Fire, wonderful, beautiful, gift from God, useful for so many things in the appropriate context. Sex, same thing. Sex is not bad. It is good. It is wonderful. It's a gift from God. It's a blessing in the proper context. But that's inconvenient. But again, I say to you, beloved, that sometimes obedience to God is inconvenient. 
Do you know what is more uncomfortable than inconvenience in this temporal life? An eternity separated from the love and blessing of God. Because you chose your own desires over God's desires. And you wounded your conscience by trading the truth of God for a lie and worshiping the created thing rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Beloved, as Christians, you need to understand that we do not have absolute liberty in areas where God has decisively already given a judgment, a verdict, such as the realm of sexual immorality. People want to defend their promiscuity under the guise of Christian liberty, but you do not have liberty to do those things that God has said not to do. And so, um, a war is being fought, not only in our culture, but within the church. And so it must be addressed within the church and not just in the culture. We need to be careful we don't find ourselves pointing our fingers so far outside that we overlook the things that are happening within the church itself. Right now, today, the abuse of free speech is being weaponized to legalize the vilest and most explicit forms of pornography. Uh, that will lead, ultimately, to all forms of sexuality being legalized in our culture if something is not done. It is already happening it is already out there. There are people who are campaigning for um, consensual acts at any age with any person. There are people who are campaigning. Uh, and I don't even know how you work consent into this. It doesn't matter. They actually don't care about consent, believe it or not, no matter what they say. Uh, but there are people campaigning for the legal legality of bestiality as well. Uh, this will happen in our lifetimes if God doesn't intervene and bring revival to not only the church, has to start the church, but to our culture as well. And these are not things that we should just sit back idly by and say, well, did you, did you hear that? That was the most heartbreaking part of 1 Samuel 2. Did you hear it? The word of the Lord comes through a child to Eli about his own sons and their wickedness. And instead of his reaction going straight to his sons, disciplining them and bringing them out of the priesthood, he says, well, whatever God's going to do, God's going to do. That's wicked. That is wicked. And Eli was judged for that as well. If you keep reading. And so, it's not for us to just sit back and say, well, you know, if that's where the culture is going to go, that's where it's going to go. If that's where the church is going to go, that's where the church... No! No, there ought to be something that rises up inside of us 
who belong to Jesus Christ, who've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, to not see the church just go the way of the culture. And not to just see our culture go the way of the rest of the world. It's not for us to just sit back idly by and say, well, whatever will be, will be, que sera, sera. And it doesn't matter that there are people who want to attack us because we believe that uh, gender norms are important because they're a God-given reality, a blessing and not a curse. There are people who are going to hate us because we, we think bathrooms should be segregated by biological sex differences. But there is a war going on, and there are casualties. 50 million of my own generation killed before they see the light of day. It involves abortion on demand and the elimination of every restriction on the procedure. It includes making promiscuity the norm and chastity and purity the thing that is weird and uncommon. This war seeks to put forward homosexuality as a positive good, which it is not. It is not even a net zero. Homosexuality is destructive to those who engage in it and the society that they are meant to contribute to. Even in the church, people want to believe that they have an unalienable right to pleasure and sexual pleasure. However we define it, however we define it for ourselves, sexual pleasure, even within the church, even as elders sit down with couples who are going through marital problems, it will come up that somehow their sexual pleasure is necessary to human happiness and fulfillment. This is just not true. Our society has rejected wholesale the very notion that there is such thing as vice, with one exception. The only vice our culture now recognizes is the refusal to join the zeitgeist in their quest for sexual liberation. In other words, stay on God's side the powers that be will demand, again, it's not just an ideology, it's a religion. They will demand that you pay penance for some kind of high price, whether economically or socially. Cancel you. They will get rid of you. Um, just last week, I had someone ask if we've ever had any issues uh, with someone coming in and trying to kind of bait us by coming in and then revealing that they were uh, homosexual or, or something like this and that we were, you know, bigoted towards them. We haven't had anything like that happen as a church, but early on uh, in our existence, we had an opportunity uh, to possibly purchase a building. And that building ended up being owned by a gay man who made it his mission that we would not be able to get that building. It went from he was willing to do everything to help us get it to I will do everything to make sure you cannot get this building and this property. 
And so because of that pressure, what do we see? We see entire denominations are rushing to catch up to the culture. And in their minds, in their eyes, in their preaching, in their sermons, if there's any sin of which we must repent, it's the sin of affirming what God has always said about sex and sexual morality. Here's the deal, though. If we go along with that trend, we will have no good news to preach. Because in their minds, they're is no sin from which we need the gospel to actually rescue us. They read Psalm 130, which says, if God should mark iniquity, who could stand? And they come away and say, see, God doesn't mark iniquity. That's not what that verse says. Beloved, God does mark iniquity. Who can't stand? Only those who by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, his person and his work, his sacrifice of his perfect life for you on the cross, only those who have obtained an alien Righteousness, a righteousness that does not belong to them naturally, but has been bestowed upon them by grace. Only those can stand. Because God does mark iniquity. And he never winks at or sweeps sin under the rug. We know that God will still mark the sin. But if the church won't call sin, sin, then it also cannot call anyone to repent of it and escape divine condemnation by turning to Christ. Sexual immorality and the kingdom of God are incompatible. Well, we, we need to see if we're compatible. That is incompatible with being a Christian. We, we, we just need to see if we work together before we actually tie the knot. That is incompatible with the kingdom of God and should not be even named among you. No person who violates God's sexual ethic and does not repent has any part in his kingdom. And if we don't proclaim this to lost people, they will remain lost. How blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. And if all you bring to people is, hey, God says you're okay, you have not brought good news. I'm sorry, your feet are ugly. Because every step you take blasphemes the name and the work of Jesus Christ. Hear me, beloved, it is not legalism to call sin, sin. It is love. For only then can we lift up the grace and gospel of Jesus Christ and call people to repent of their sins and find true forgiveness and peace with God, whereby they may be healed, restored, and redeemed in every way, body, mind, and spirit. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to see here, if we look at the second section of our text today, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, what we find is that Paul tells us that as Christians, we are forbidden 
to engage in immoral sexual activity. And he anchors his reasoning several different ways concerning our identity as image bearers, first of all, and now as Christians. So picking up in verse 12, he says, all things are lawful for me. Notice in your text, there should be quotation marks around that. Paul is not quoting scripture there. He's quoting either the culture of Corinth itself, which was dominated by a sex cult, Aphrodite, or he is quoting the Corinthians who had responded to his first letter, which again, praise God, we don't actually have. And they're saying, hey, all things are lawful for me. In other words, when they got, uh, by some chance, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, and they heard, shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? The Corinthians' answer to that question was not Paul's the most definitive Greek expression of no, but rather theirs was the opposite yes. That's what was going on in the Corinthian church. We are sinners. God loves sinners. He's got grace. We want to keep on sinning. This is awesome. Here we go. And by all accounts, if you read 1 Corinthians, it almost seems like instead of them trying to outdo one another in love, which he will call them to, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, they were trying to out-sin one another so that their testimony time was more like, guess what I did this week? Wow, God's grace is so great, isn't it? Again, go back to chapter 1. I'm not kidding when I say it's amazing to me. I don't think Paul was wrong. This is where I need to get my own heart in check sometimes. But he still calls them the church, calls them brothers, calls them sanctified by Jesus. Why? Because there is no sin that's more powerful than the blood of Jesus. However, if you go on sinning without repenting, it is questionable whether or not you actually have received redemption through the blood of Jesus. That becomes the problem. I'm not saying you are. I'm not saying you're not. Just saying, it becomes a question that needs to be asked and answered. So, they're saying, hey, nothing's out of bounds. All things are lawful for me. Paul says, but not all things are helpful. Hey, this week, you want to build a fire in your living room outside of the fireplace? I mean, I don't think there's a law against it necessarily but it's not helpful and you might burn your house down and then there'll be a problem because the law wasn't going to come and say you can't build a fire in your house but it did say you can't burn your house down on purpose that's called arson are you with me yeah all things are lawful paul says okay fine but it's not all helpful He says, again, all things are lawful, but he says, but here's the problem. When you engage in sin, you are not dominating over that thing. That thing is dominating over you. What did I say earlier? Sin will always cost you more than you were willing to pay and take you further than you were willing to go. 
You never think it's going to end up where it ends up until you're already there. And it's too late. He says, but I will not be dominated by anything. Why? Because if the Son of God has set you free, then you are free indeed. Not free to do whatever you want, but free to live outside the dominion of sin's power and reign in your life. He says, I'll not be dominated by anything. Then look at verse 13. This is what he, then again, he quotes presumably the Corinthian church or the Corinthian culture. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. They're trying to say, hey, look, I've got an appetite for food and I've got an appetite for sex. Why not just fulfill both of those appetites? Surely those are why I have them in the first place. But Paul points to something. He says, basically, you are made with divine design. And this goes for every image bearer, not just the Christian. Uh, they say the stomach was created for food and food for the stomach. Similarly, they're trying to draw a straight line and say the body was created for sexual activity and sexual activity for the body, right? Paul says, no. The body was never designed to engage in fornication or sexual immorality. Having a stomach indeed points to the need to consume food, but having a body does not point to the need for sexual gratification. And Paul says what? God will destroy both one and the other. It, this, is, this is not the design that God gave for this thing. Again, sex is not bad. It is good. It is wonderful. It is a blessing like fire when it is in the right context. Look at verse 14. Now what does he do? He says, first of all, hey, this... He, you, you think that you're doing what you were designed to do, but when you uh, engage in fornication and sexual immorality, you're actually going against the grain of your design. And what happens when you do that? Right? God gave me an elbow. It bends. It bends in one direction. If I go against the design that God gave for my elbow, what's going to happen? Pain, destruction of all kinds of things inside my arm, not just the bone, the veins, the capillaries, the, 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 the sinew, the, the tendons, everything, okay? When you go against the grain of the design, it ends in destruction. But then, then in verse 14, he takes it to a different place. He says, yeah, God's, God's going to destroy that, by the way. Uh, our loved ones and the Lord who have, as Paul said, fallen asleep or have died, where are their bodies? They're buried. Where is their spirit? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Are they in need of their stomach or their sex organs right now? They are not. God is sustaining them completely. And he is sustaining them until then what? Verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Raise who up? Raise you, raise me. Which you and which me? This one. 
Jesus is raised and he presents himself to the disciples. And how do they know that it's him? There's the nail wounds in his hand. There's the spear wound in his side. And even though initially he was unrecognizable to them, because it seems as if the Lord had kind of covered their vision to a certain extent, that was taken away and he was revealed to them to be not just some other Jesus, not Jesus 2.0, but the same Jesus that was crucified, dead and buried, is the same Jesus that resurrected from the grave. And the same you that goes into the ground is the same you that God by the Spirit's power is going to raise up on the last day. In the same world that he made for us to exist in, we are terrestrial creatures, is the same world that God, again, by the Spirit's power, is going to renew and glorify as well. And so what does Paul say? Why shouldn't you engage in sexual immorality? Because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection? Yes, because of the resurrection. Your body is coming back. Therefore, you ought to treat this gift of a body that God has given you with honor and respect. To use it as it was designed to be used, not to go against what God designed it for. You'll be resurrected. The relationship between the stomach and food is temporary, but the relationship between the resurrected Christ and the bodies of his people is eternal. Even as when Jesus was incarnated, he who had no corporeal uh, binding body and took on human flesh, hear me, never to discard it again. Eternally united to the same body that God knit within Mary's womb. And so when you're being tempted, consider the eternal destination of your body. Because if our body will be raised as Christ's body was raised, ought we not to keep our bodies as pure as Christ's body is pure? And that leads into the very next set of verses, 15 through 17. He says, you've been united to Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your, your body matters. Your body matters. It matters to God and it ought to matter to you. We are not Gnostics. We are not looking to escape this world and escape our bodies, we are looking for the redeemed, resurrected, glorified reality that God is going to bring through his Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. And you are united to Christ. The Spirit lives within you. Everywhere, hey, how do you know <laughs> when this building is empty, is the Holy Spirit here? Just an empty building. How can you know when the Holy Spirit is here? When people who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them show up. Did you know we didn't have to invite the Holy Spirit to come in here this morning? Instead, 
in obedience to God's word and his spirit through his word, we all showed up. And guess who's here? The Holy Spirit. Because he lives inside of us and gives life to our mortal bodies. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in you and gives life to your mortal body. And you've been united to Christ by the Spirit. The union that we Christians have with Christ is a full union. It is not only spiritual. It is also physical, mysteriously. It is totally inconceivable that he who is a member of Christ's body, then as Paul would say, it should take his body and unite it then with a prostitute or with some other person that is not his or her spouse. And what does he say when that happens? He says that there is a union, a spiritual union that takes place even though a physical act is happening. There is a spiritual reality that is taking place when two people come together and know one another as Adam knew Eve and Eve knew Adam. It's not only physical, it is also spiritual. And so, verse 18, what does Paul say? He says, then what? Flee from sexual immorality. Flee. You know what flee means? I, I can't even demonstrate it because I can't afford to buy a new microphone. Okay? <laughs> Fleeing would mean without hesitation, without second thought, dropping everything and running in the opposite direction. I don't care how mighty in the Lord you think you are. Okay? I, I've, you've heard me say this before. You are not wiser than Solomon, stronger than Samson, and you are not closer to the heart of God than David was. All three of those dudes fell to sexual immorality. So don't, when, when sexual immorality is placed in front of you, when the temptation is there, that is not the time to puff your chest and say, I got this. No, Paul, After his conversion, was there anyone more holy than Paul besides Jesus? I don't know. But I'm saying he's up there. And Paul doesn't say at that point, stand firm. He says, run. Run, 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 run. Flee sexual immorality, he says. Why? He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What does this mean? It means that sexual sin is unique in regards to its consequences. You see, sexual sins are not easily wiped away from our memories, nor are they easily dealt with in subsequent relationships. There are Marriages that fall apart because of things that happened before people were married in regards to these things. No matter how strong they thought they might be, they thought they could get over this or get through that, and it ends up just not being the case. Should they, could they, would they? 
I don't know. I'm just telling you the reality of the end game sometimes. And this is the reality. That sexual sins leave a deeper scar than other sins. And all you have to do is think about how many families that you know have been broken up as a result of sexual immorality. Some even in this room whose families were broken apart because of sexual immorality. And I'm sorry, Jesus will ultimately wipe away every tear from your eye. And there will be a day where you will stand and you will give him praise and glory and honor for everything that he did and allowed to happen. But there are some wounds that time just does not seem to totally heal. Jesus can't. But time doesn't. And that's why you've got to keep bringing those things back to Jesus. And trusting him to sustain you even when the pain doesn't seem to go away. In verse 19, what does he say? Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So do you see, he's, he's addressing them. He's saying, you're made with divine design. You are going to be resurrected. The you that is you is going to be resurrected. You have been united to Christ. And if you engage in sexual immorality, it's going to destroy you and possibly even others, physically and spiritually. And he says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> do you not know? He's not thinking they may not know. He's like, oh, wait a minute. Did you guys not know this? Let me fill you in. He, it's rhetorical. They know that their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. He says, whom you have for God. Beloved, the most important element of old covenant temple worship was purity. Every time a new element was brought into the temple. What had to be what had to happen had to be purified by blood. Beloved, who are you? You are the blood-bought people of God who have been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Should you then take those things that were made for the worship and honor of God, made for the temple of God, that have been purified by blood, bring them out of the temple and use them for common use? The Old Testament tells us that's a really bad idea. Remember Daniel? One of the kings came and said, hey, didn't we find some really great stuff taken out of that temple in Jerusalem? Like some awesome cups? Let's bring those out and serve everybody in this common meal with those things. Bad idea. Hand of the Lord shows up literally and writes, you've heard the phrase, the writing on the wall, it's a biblical thing. The people who say that got that from the Bible. Hand of God shows up, writes on the wall, and then they all die. Bad idea to take the thing that God had purified for his worship and use it for common things. The dwelling place of God cannot be profaned with impurity. And in the new covenant, each Christian becomes a temple for the residence of the Holy Spirit, rendering sexual immorality an abomination that profanes the temple of God.
And then lastly, verse 20. What does Paul say? Again, you, you are not your own. Sorry, that's the end of verse 19. You are not your own. But what? Verse 20. For you were bought with a price. Therefore, or so, glorify God in your body. A high ransom price has been paid for our redemption. It constitutes us as the property of the Redeemer. We belong to someone else. We belong to Jesus. And therefore, our bodies ought not to be used in whatever way we want. So the decisive question then for us as Christians should never be, how, how far is too far? I mean, what's the line, though, really? I mean, how, how close can I get and still be? Like, if you're asking that question, you've already crossed the line in your heart, even if you haven't done it with your body. The question we should be asking is instead, to whom do I belong and what will give Christ glory? Not how far is too far, but who do I belong to and what will give Christ glory? Now, I know we've gone long. We cannot stop there. Because we skipped right to the second part of the text. We do need to remember that the New Testament gospel is about forgiveness. And there is not one sin on the list that cannot be forgiven. And Paul lists, it's not exhaustive, it's not complete, but it's, it's pretty good. The list he gives in 1 Corinthians 6. And notice, it's not all about sexual immorality, though that becomes the thing that he starts to dwell on and then uses to transition to talk about married life, etc. But in verse 9 he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, those, nor men who practice homosexuality or women, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you want a more, not complete, but more comprehensive list, go to Romans chapter 1. And we do need to recognize, again, forgiveness is not needed if sin does not exist. John will say in 1 John, if you say you have no sin, the truth is not in you. But Jesus, as well as Paul, Moses, and the other prophets and apostles recognize adultery, homosexuality, and other forms of sexual immorality as sin. See Leviticus 18.5, Matthew 5.27-30, John 7.53-8.11, 1 Corinthians 6.9. But the good news of the gospel is that every sexual sin is forgivable. 
every single one. All that's required is repentance and faith in Christ alone. But it is one thing to forgive sin. It is another entirely to sanction it. To give license to sin is not to liberate people, but to actually enslave them. Those who give way to all of their sexual appetites, they think they are living in freedom. They're actually living as slaves. Proverbs chapter 5, Solomon knew. He said to his son, do not give your strength, your youth, or your years to the seductress. 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 3, you want to know God's will for your life? Paul says God's will for your life is your sanctification. Interestingly, though, as soon as saying that, he deals with a topic that you might not expect. When he says, therefore, again, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God. You ever prayed or asked a pastor or somebody, what's God's will for my life? I really just want to know God's will for my life. Is there anyone who can tell me what is God's will for my life? Here it is. Paul tells you. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And he goes on, but he directly relates your sanctification with abstaining from sexual immorality. Young people struggling in your walk with God, yet indulging in sexual immorality and wondering why you're not getting any further than you are, you have a roadblock in your way. Repent, flee, embrace the grace and forgiveness of God and run away from the slavery of sexual immorality into the freedom of God's forgiveness and redemption. Again, the question you should be asking yourself is not how far is too far, but who do I belong to and what brings glory to God? For those who are married, we know, do we not, that in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, the preacher says that the marriage bed is undefiled. This often causes people to say, well then, what, what can we do together in that undefiled bed? Often again, asking a very similar question to how far is too far. The preacher is not trying to give you a list of what to do and not to do. He's drawing a comparison between the marriage bed and any other bed. And he's saying that the marriage bed is undefiled, which means, therefore, that every other bed not blessed by the union of marriage is therefore defiled. That's the point. That if you don't want to live in defilement, and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, it's better to marry than to burn 
with lust. I don't have time to get into everything relating to singleness right now, but I will say this much. If you are single and do not want to be, that is a burden, not a gift. There are people who are trying to tell you that that's maybe, maybe God's given you the gift of singleness. I don't know anyone that has the gift of singleness that actually wants to be married and is not. There are those who want to be married and are not and have not for many various different reasons. But just because you're single doesn't mean God's given you the gift of singleness. Now your singleness, while it exists, can be a gift. And Paul will tell you how in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that you may devote yourself to the Lord and to his ministry. But just because you're single doesn't mean you've been given the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness belongs to those who are single and happy about it in the Lord. Okay, not just happy about it because they don't have to put up with anybody else in their mess. They're happy in the Lord being single and do not have a desire for marriage. If you are single and have a desire for marriage and you're not married, and maybe you don't know if you ever will be married, that is not necessarily the gift of singleness. That is a different kind of gift. It's a burden. A burden that you have an opportunity to take to the Lord and receive sweet comfort every single day while you rely and wait on Him. Please don't hear people who say, just because you're single, you have the gift of singleness, when in your heart of hearts you want to be married. God is not capricious. He didn't give you a desire to be married so that he could wave it in front of your face and say, ha, 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 everybody but you. Aren't you happy with this gift of singleness? That's... That's not our Lord. And again, there are people who are single for many different reasons. But as long as you are and you desire not to be, that is a burden. But that burden can be a gift. Not the gift of singleness, but a different kind of gift. As you may receive from the Lord a certain unique kind of comfort that the rest of us may not get to experience in the same way in our life as you find Christ to be enough for you day after day after day, even though you may still desire marriage. That's all I'm going to say about that for now. Again, Ephesians 5, 3, Paul again says that sexual immorality should not be mentioned among you. And again, I tell you, Paul was writing to the church, not the culture. And today we are fighting a war, not just in the culture, but in the church. So what should be mentioned among us? Not alliance and not tolerance, but compassion. Remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4, who had four husbands and was then living with a man who was not her husband. Remember the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Jesus was not condoning 
the sexual promiscuity of these women, both of whom likely may have been victims to some degree, yet he had compassion on them and called them into a greater identity than their sexual pasts, which he was not merely going to overlook, but redeem with his life and blood on the cross. And what was his call to those women? It was not, it's okay, I love you and everybody else too. It doesn't matter what you do. That's not what Jesus' call was. No, the call was to what? As he says to the woman in John chapter 8, and he said to so many others as well, go and sin no more. Notice that even if she had been a victim to some degree, he does not say, go away, you didn't do anything wrong. He says, go and sin no more. So we need to have compassion. We need to understand that the church is full of sinners, not saints, but sinners who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. None of us have clean pasts. But praise God, by the blood of Jesus Christ, we all can have clean futures. There is no temptation that is common, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that God will not make a way of escape. Many people say that they use this verse and they twist it to say God will never give you anything that you can't handle. That is a lie. God will give you things that you can't handle. He's drawing you to himself to bring it to him who can handle it. I don't know if that was proper English, but I think you got the gist. He can handle it. You can't bring it to him. Okay? But he did promise that there will not be any temptation which will befall you, which is not common to man, and which he has not promised to give a way of escape. The problem is we act like the guy in the flood. You remember the old joke, right? The old preacher's joke? There's a big flood in an area, and there's a guy out on his house on the porch, and it's flooding, and his neighbors go by, and a big four-by-four, four, they're like, hey, man, come on, let's go, let's get out of here, it's going to get worse. And he says, no, don't worry about it, I pray, God said he's going to take care of me. So they go by, the water raises, he has to go up into the second story of his house, pretty soon some other neighbors come by in a boat, hey, man, come on, let's, let's get out of here, like, this is going to get worse, you're going to die, man, let's go. He's like, no, 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 don't worry about it, I pray, God said he's going to make a way for me. The water rises, he has to get up on his roof. Then the search and rescue team comes in the helicopter. They've got the you know the thing falling down, which I would love to do that someday. I've always wanted to hang from a helicopter. Why wouldn't you just do it just for the fun of it? But instead he's like, no, 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 I got it. I prayed. God said he's gonna save me. Homeboy died in the flood. What happened? Gets to heaven. He's like, God, what's up? I thought you said you're gonna. It's like, what do you want? I sent your neighbors in a four-by-four, some guys in a boat, some dudes in a helicopter. You didn't take the way. That's on you, not on me. It's a joke, but it tells a story, right? Paints a picture. God's promised that you'll not be tempted in any way that's not common to man, and he's promised that he will make a way of escape. Our problem is we ignore the way of escape. But as long as you still have breath, all is not lost. 
All is not lost. There is forgiveness at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. So what did Paul say? Do you not know? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, such grace. What does he say? And such were some of you. But something happened. What happened? Notice all of this is in the past tense. You were washed. You were sanctified. Hear this. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? No one. Verse 4 of Psalm 130. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Verse 7, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I don't know what your sexual past is. I know mine. And it's not great. I need the blood of Jesus and the redemption of Christ just like everybody else. No matter where you have been, what you have done, what you've engaged in, whether you were saved or not saved when it happened, none of it is okay. None of it gets a pass. But all of it can be forgiven. And all of it can be redeemed by Jesus. It doesn't matter what it was. It doesn't matter how much it cost you or how far it took you. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. For his arm is not short unto salvation. And our God is mighty to save. Does that mean that just because you turn right now and repent or you turn those things over to the Lord, that you are going to experience complete and total miraculous healing, body, soul, and mind right now in this moment? I don't know. I won't say no. I'm not going to say it's a guarantee. God has done works like that before. But even if he doesn't do it in that kind of miraculous way, he has promised to walk with you every single day, to be enough for you, and to heal you in his own time and in his own way. And I want you to think about this. Again, the Corinthians got it wrong. They heard all that from Paul before. They said, therefore, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's like, wrong. Wrong. There are many today, whether because of their own sexual sin or other sexual sin against them, that they've written it completely out of their lives. It's one of the, again, sin is, sexual sin is unique in this way. 
but it's one of the only sins that we do that with. Think about the sin of gluttony for a moment. What if we did that with gluttony? Hey, brother, that's sin. Gluttony is sin. Eating too much. Answer, stop eating. How long is that going to last? I don't know, three weeks? I think that's how far it goes. How long you can go without food? Be roughly three weeks. That's how long it's going to last. And you're going to die. Probably go to heaven. But you're going to die. And you're not going to die from not putting sex in its proper context. But again, sex is not bad. Sin is bad. Sexual morality is bad. Abuse is bad. Sex is good. It's a gift from God. It's a blessing in its proper context. Put it where it belongs and receive the blessing from it. Just like you would say to a blood. Not stop eating, but put it in its proper context. You don't tell a drunkard to never drink anything ever again. You say put the alcohol away and drink some water put the alcohol in its proper context, someday it might become again the blessing that was meant to be in your life instead of the curse that it is now. So then, how does Paul end? So let us glorify God in our bodies. So beloved, let us glorify God with our bodies out of true joy and gratefulness for the redemption of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has bought us with a price, for we are not our own, but belong to him in both body and soul. Beloved, let us glorify God in our bodies. Amen. Let's pray. And as I do, I thank you for your patience today that we don't have to make that a two-part sermon. Father, by your providence, we were brought here today. And we ask now for your grace and your spirit to confirm the word that was preached. God, this is heavy. It's not easy. It's a difficult subject to handle without defaulting into humor or anger. So I thank you for your grace for us to receive this today. And I ask God that your spirit would do the work that is required now. That where your people need conviction, that you would convict, not condemn, as the enemy does, but convict. So that change can happen in our hearts. God, where there needs to be comfort, would you bring comfort by your spirit? Those who have been hurt by their own or others' sexual immorality, God, would you bring healing? Not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Would you bring healing, God? Would I ask that it would be immediate, miraculous, complete. I know that you can. 
but Lord, where there are those who may need to walk with you for a while like this, I pray, God, for great grace, that they may every day surrender their pain to you and find that you can handle it. Bring comfort, Lord, I pray. For all of us, Lord, we ask for your sanctification, that you would grow us in maturity, that you would grow our hearts of affection for you and our desire for holiness, that we would flee from sexual immorality. That God, you would help us to take a stand in the church for what is right and what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. That we may call sin sin so that we may revel in the grace and the mercy of God. We ask God that you would bring revival to the church and to our culture. We don't have to just sit back and watch idly by while everything continues as it has gone. But rather, you would raise up a people. We love you. We're submitted to your word, to your spirit. willing to stand for what is true. If you can use us in that, Lord, then we say, here we are, God, use us. In Jesus' name, amen.